0: livepodcasts.fm This podcast is a Prime Media broadcasting production. People are reshaping the mindset of the masses. Africa State of Mind.
1: On this episode of Africa State of Mind, we have British-Nigerian news anchor at CNN International, Zayna Sher. She anchors CNN Newsroom. Zain touched on the ignorance some people have about Africa.
0: I have been asked whether there are cars in Africa. You know, I've been asked whether or not, um, you know, people on the continent at all speak any English. And I just feel as though there is still some work to be done.
1: She told us about how she dealt with discrimination and prejudice as a youngster.
0: You must never, ever internalize other people's lack of faith in you. That is the key to life.
1: Zane's mother sent her to Nigeria at the age of eight. She shared some of her experience when she moved back to Nigeria for the first time.
0: It was such a great watershed moment in my upbringing because I really for the first time was exposed to
1: who I was. Zane, a new mother, joined CNN as a business correspondent based in New York City. We start the conversation where she talks about her upbringing.
0: I grew up in a single-parent family. My dad passed away when I was very young. Mm. And so for my mom, for a long time, she was very keen to expose us to different cultures, different backgrounds, that sort of thing. Mm. And obviously, being Igbo, being Nigerian, she didn't want us to just be raised in the Western world and not know who we were. Mm. Um, so when I was about 10, from 9, 10, um, yes, yeah, this is the early 90s, my mum sent me back to live in Nigeria, and she sent me back by myself. so my sister was there already and and um she was I think she must be like four or five years old and um we lived with my grandparents, and I probably only saw my mom maybe once in about a year and a half, maybe two years and but it was such a great um watershed moment in my upbringing because I really for the first time was exposed who I was mm-hmm. and you know having experience being bullied in um, in the UK having experience being at times one of the only black people in class it was the first time where I really could walk into a classroom and see everybody else that looked mm-hmm. like me mm-hmm. um, I had gone through I remember when I was in the UK every Wednesday we would have swimming lessons this is when I was in elementary school mm-hmm. we had swimming lessons and I remember Entering the swimming pool, and I was the only black girl in the class, and as the minute I put my foot in the water,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the other children would scream and cry because no. they thought that if I entered the pool, the water would turn brown. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, so I, you know, having experienced that um, and not understanding, you know, what was wrong with being different and what was wrong with being of a different face and 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 that kind of bullying being able to go back to nigeria and understand who i truly was to be able to look into the mirror and see my soul was just such a transformative part of my life just in terms of confidence and confidence building and and just knowing my roots it it was it was a wonderful thing that my mum did for us
1: Sure. Before I even get onto just um you know obviously the the huge um cultural differences being in Nigeria and being in the UK, I'm really fascinated um by this whole you know just you experiencing that as a ten year old um or you experiencing that as a young child, and it seems from the way that you describe your mother that she was very much um you know she must have spoken a lot of uh, you know she must have been motivating you a lot. What sort of things did she say each time you had to deal um with uh with that sort of uh, racism um while you were a child?
0: I think one of the things she always would say to us was, um, you know, just it's so important. Like if you if you want to be anyone in this life or, you know, just aside from obviously the usual cliches like believing in yourself, she always said, you must never, ever internalize other people's lack of faith mm-hmm. in you. That sure. is the key to life. And and so that was something that really stuck with me. And every time it happened and every time I was in a situation like that, that I would remember my mother's words. Mm-hmm. And it really helped me... Um, have a bit more self-confidence and belief, mm. and I and I feel as though just with um, you know, my mother experienced it too, right? Mm. So she came to the UK um, with my dad in the seventies, mm. and she also experienced difficulties when it when it when it came to you know being you know racism and that sort of thing in the UK, and so just as a family, it made us a lot closer because we had each other. Mm. Um, but the real turning point was my mum just trying to expose us to different backgrounds and different cultures and that sort of thing and and just teaching us to really believe in ourselves. And also, when you don't really have that many friends when you're growing up, um, it means you have more time to put into your studies. (laughs) And that's what my mom really honed. I mean, she really honed in on that. I have a typical strict Nigerian mother, and that's what she was focused on a lot of the times when we were growing up.
1: And also, um, while you were in the UK, how did she, um, how did her and your dad, and I'm sorry because I know you said that he did pass away, um, but how did they keep you and your 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 siblings connected to the continent, If, for lack of, you know, was it through food, was it, um, were they speaking the language a bit, and you know, just like, what was that like, because I'm Ugandan, and I know that when I visit people in the UK, or even, you know, when I'm with Ugandans in South Africa, it's like, everybody's having a talkage, party, people are speaking the language, we're <laughs> yes. kneeling when we're greeting and then the minute i walk out of that environment i have to switch gears into being you know kind of acclimatizing into the society that i'm in so how did you balance Uh, almost being in two worlds
0: yeah so my dad passed away when i was five Mm. um so there's a lot that you know i i don't remember in terms of unfortunately in terms of just what he did Mm. but we were always going to Nigerian parties. Nice. <laughs> there was always, I mean, obviously in, in, in the UK, there's a really strong, thriving Nigerian community. Mm. And so, you know, they have these, what, what my mom used to call these Enugu State Women's Association, where people from Enugu State, which is where we're from, we're from the eastern part of Nigeria, would meet once a week and they would throw these parties and your kids would get to know their kids. And then also, you know, on, in terms of food, it was always plantain, obwana soup, egusi soup. Yam, rice, akara, pap. I mean, that's all we ate. I mean, mm-hmm. my mom never really cooked Western food apart from maybe for breakfast. But other than that, it was all Nigerian was food. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, she spoke she spoke Igbo, mostly between her and my dad. But when I when my sister and I left to live in Enugu, we ended up speaking the language mm-hmm. as well. So my sister and I, I have to say that my Igbo, I'm so embarrassed, is not as good as it was when I was 10. <laughs> <laughs> because I lived there and it was p- pretty much perfect. Yeah. I can understand everything, and I speak a little bit. There's actually a clip on YouTube of me speaking Igbo, and I, ha- I had to I have to sprinkle it with English <laughs> <laughs> now it. and again because a lot of it is completely forgotten. But um but after living there for a couple of years I really I learned the language so I'm very proud of that so it's
1: still in me yeah. I think that um, your story is actually so similar to many um, Africans across the board whether they've you know they've moved from one part of the continent to another or you know off the continent there's always this whole thing of like oh my gosh how do I stay you know connected or that whole idea like with me with my Luganda when I'm in Uganda it's perfect if you call me when I'm out of Uganda I'm talking and my father's <laughs> like you do remember you're not Nigerian I'm like oh, daddy I know it's like <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think it, it is something that is quite a familiar story, especially when you consider the fact that as Africans we're literally everywhere. But I think what's so beautiful is, especially yeah. at this point in history, everybody's embracing the fact that they're African. It's it's just a moment of pride. Why would you? I mean, you know, because you you being based um in the states, um, do you see the world as seeing Africa almost as the next kind of you know the center point, if if I can use that term? Um, I have to.
0: Say- say just being in New York I, it's mixed mm-hmm. because among certain people who are really well-traveled and cultured and enlightened mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right they they understand that Africa is has always been a bright spot but mm-hmm. it's only now that the world is sort of catching up and, and realizing it and, and where they're beginning to sort of celebrate a lot of Nigerian artists see it um, Lupita, you I know, mean, mm. obviously she's in, in the mainstream, and then you have um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, mm. who in, in the United States, her books are really loved and admired. But I also have to be honest, I do still spot certain degrees of in, in ignorance as well. Um,
1: mm.
0: You know, I have been asked whether there are cards in Africa. You know, I've been asked whether or not, um, you know, people on the continent at all speak any English. And I just feel as though there is still some work to be done Mm -hmm. because, by and large, the coverage, um, especially written coverage when it comes to Africa, is negative because that's what people are used to. That is what sells. And um, I think we need to really reinforce the positive stories that are told. I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, obviously I work for CNN, but one thing I will say, even if I didn't work for CNN, I will say that CNN has done really good job of using its feature programming to highlight the positive stories out of Africa, mm. be it inside Africa, the African voices. I don't see that much of that in other media outlets that are non-African. I mean, obviously the BBC does as well, mm. um, so I do commend them. But but by and large, there's a, there's still some degrees. There are still some sparks of ignorance. Mm-hmm. out there when it comes to the continent. So there is still work to be done. I don't want people to think, oh, you know, we've done it. We've, we've shown that we are, um, you know, a continent of, of sort of thriving, hardworking young people that are keen to get ahead and, and, and keen to put ourselves to work. I mean, um, there are plenty of people who really don't know that much about the continent, and what they do know is actually negative. So I think that it's still important that we roll up our sleeves and still continue to do the work.
1: Um, and Zayn also in your, in your TED talk, you mentioned something about the, about, um, specializing. So, and the whole, um, art of preparing before the opportunity even arises, which I thought was just something I'd also like to kind of engage with you with simply because, um, I think on one hand, obviously we sit in a place where everybody's so excited about the future and everybody's, you know, they really think that everything is going to start happening. But on the other hand, I do to a degree feel that people on, you know, in general, there's not, Everybody kind of waits for the opportunity to arise and then to start doing the work. Um, Just in case people haven't actually heard you narrate um, that part of your preparation and getting into CNN, um, would you be able to share that with uh, the listeners?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's a fundamental belief that, you know, I've always had. I learned it from my brother, but also from my mother as well. And that is, you have to, for whatever, you have to prepare for success. You don't prepare for failure, you prepare for success. And that means you have to trust that you know that, you know, whether you believe in God or the universe or some kind of higher power, that your opportunity, Mm. the opportunity, that window is going to come for you sooner or later. Mm. And the only thing you have to do, really, your only job is to make sure that when that time comes, and that time could come in two weeks, it could come in one year, it could come in five years, when that time comes, you are one hundred percent ready for it, mm. and so you know what I've learned from other people. Really, is that oftentimes they don't necessarily have faith that that opportunity is going to come, mm. so they don't bother preparing.
1: Mm.
0: And then, if the opportunity does come, they don't have enough time to prepare. Mm. They don't. They haven't put in all the you know because you can't. I mean, it's hard to sort of scramble and prepare overnight. Mm. Um, and so sometimes they end up missing a key opportunity. Mm. Whereas if you spend your time preparing and preparing as if you believe that the opportunity is going to come one day and you make sure that you are ready, then when the opportunity does come, you are 10 times more likely to succeed. Mm. And so um, for me, that was really all about, you know, I, I always wanted to work at CNN. Mm. And that has been my mantra for a long time, just preparing for that moment to come.
1: Mm.
0: And, um, when it came to getting into CNN, I knew that I would have a better chance if I specialized in something. I mean, I'd, I'd studied, you know, all the different anchors and news presenters at CNN, and I knew that every single person had, who had made it, it I think, who had made it into CNN in a relatively short amount of time usually had some kind of specialty. So it was either business news or they specialized in politics. I mean, if you just do general news, unfortunately, a lot of people yeah. can do that. So there's no real way of you being able to stand out. So I thought to myself, okay, listen, I, I'm not, um, I'm not comp- you know, I didn't grow up in the United States. So in terms of U.S. politics, that's something that might take a lot of work to really understand. Mm. But with business news, which is universal, doesn't matter where you grow up, that is something that, A, I, I did um, a little bit, um, you know, as a teenager, I studied economics at A-level, so I under, I had a, the real sort of basics laid out for me. It's something that I've always been interested in, so I thought, okay, if one day I get an opportunity at CNN, how can I make sure that I'm ready? If one day... I get a job interview. What can I do now? This was in um, 2011 or 2010, 2011. What can I do to be ready? And so um, at that time, I was working as a freelance um, reporter at this tiny little news station called News 12. And during my spare time, I spent all of my time studying and learning business news. I would go to the library constantly. I wouldn't, I mean, you can't. You won't. You won't find me in a club or a bar now, anyway. But back then, <laughs> definitely not. Yeah. I was always either at home in the library, just studying, because I knew that if that opportunity came, I couldn't let myself down by missing it. Mm-hmm. So I studied, and then I and then I applied for a a, a job to work as a um, print reporter at this t- this tiny magazine, Money Magazine. It's not that tiny, but um, it's not. It's not it's definitely not international. And so I thought that by all of that, if an opportunity came to me, I would be ready. Because the magazine, I was learning as I was reporting. I already had TV experience working for News 12. And then in my spare time, I was studying constantly in all the business news that was sort of TV-friendly business news. Mm. Um, and so one day, to cut a long story short, I happened to meet an executive at CNN. And he it turned out by pure chance that he worked in the business unit at CNN, and he was looking for a reporter. And so when it came time for the interview and the screen test, you know, he felt so guilty because he was like, you know, we're going to bring you in for a screen test at CNN, and I'm really sorry that I don't have that much time to, you know, we need we someone right away. I don't have much time to sort of wait. Would you be able to come in? I think it was like one or two weeks he gave me. Yeah. And he felt bad because there's not that much time to prepare for for what a lot of people would be the biggest screen test of your life. But I felt great because I knew that I'd been preparing for years for that moment. Mm. And I believe that, you know, not to not to sort of, I mean, you know, I don't know how spiritual the audience is, but I, mm. I absolutely believe that there is good karma and hard work.
1: Yeah.
0: I believe that if you work towards something and you, you let the universe know that you're working towards it before you even get the opportunity, that is a dramatic act of faith. Mm. And the more you show acts of faith, the more the universe, God, whatever you believe in, mm. says, ah, this person deserves a blessing because mm. they are showing faith. It's it's only blind faith that somebody would go to the library like every day mm. and work towards an opportunity that they don't even know is coming. Mm. That's an act of faith and I think that the higher power out there really does respect
1: that. So, yeah, that's I, I, I mean, I think one of the I love I love so many things about just the your commitment and your your blind faith. I think the blind faith is so important because um, that's all you have. You know, more often than not, um, and just your your consistent, you know, you consistently just reading and teaching yourself and ensuring that you became the best in the with what you had, it just reminds me of, you know, I feel that sometimes people, that sometimes we forget that when it comes to excellence or greatness or success or just achieving your life goals, whatever the case may be, it's It's made in those little steps. It's those day to day mundane, oh my gosh, this is boring, I'm tired, I don't want to do it. It's all of those little steps that get us into those kind of spotlight moments so I because I think it's what what I love is the fact that it just reminds me of the fact that success is not made in the spotlight. It's literally made in the dark room on your own and you know and depends on how bad it is that you really want it that you're going to actually end up getting it and you know that that's I think that that's a message that is not unfortunately shared as much as what it should be you know but I mean you know hearing your story also just reminds me of that because I think that that's something that people need to understand you don't you did not just wake up and end up there there was a lot of um back-end work that went into it even when you didn't know that the opportunity would arise
0: yeah, and actually, it reminds me of um, a quote I, I read in a book, um, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People or Highly Effective People. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen Covey, the author, says that private victories precede public victories. Okay. So I think that's the quote. I'm not entirely sure. Maybe I'm misquoting him, but it's just this idea that what you do in private, mm-hmm. how hard you're working in private, Every, you know, if you want to be a doctor, all of the hard work going pouring through the medical text in private is what precedes you then getting into Harvard Medical School or whatever it is, you know. Mm-hmm. The private victories is what precedes the public victories. You need to accumulate a lot of private victories before you get to the public victory. And and actually, you know, this the formula of preparing for success before you even see it or there's any chance of that opportunity actually is something that I you know I, I copied that formula again, even when I was at CNN. After like a year at CNN, I said to myself, okay, you know, I'm really enjoying this, but, you know, I would like to see what the next step is for me within the company. I love my company and love my job, but, you know, every so often, you kind of want to Mm. move up a little bit. And um, so, I knew that most people work for maybe about five to ten years before they become bankers. I mean, it's just, once you're a reporter, you don't become an anchor overnight.
1: Yeah.
0: But I said to myself, let me just see if this formula of preparation, this blind faith preparation, works again. So again, in my bedroom, I would practice anchoring, and this is this is me getting actually quite personal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so exposing myself. But anyway, I would practice and practice and practice. It was a completely different skill to reporting. You know, your breadth of knowledge has to be so vast. There is, uh, you you do interviews, which is very different from just reporting. When mm. you're out in the field, it's a completely different skill set. And I just thought maybe there'll be one day where, you know, um, there's a there's a situation where they're down an anchor, and you know, someone's had to cancel last minute, and you know, I'm the only person that's available, and they'll give me a shot. Maybe, maybe. Mm. And so, just on, I was. Single at that time, so that's why I had all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, it's
1: changed now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's definitely when you have a baby and you're married, it's definitely different. Yeah. But um, so I would just spend my time in my bedroom practicing and practicing. And there was a talent coach within CNN that I came up to him and I said, "Listen, um, you know, can you help me practice?" And and he said, "You know, you're not an anchor. Why would you need to practice?" And I said, "Oh, you know, I just, just in case one day my time comes, I just really want to make sure I have the skills." And so. Whenever he wasn't busy, he would take me to the studio and we would just practice and practice. And then it was about, I think about six months of that, I got a call from a CNN executive in Atlanta, I was living in New York, and she said to me, it was actually on my birthday, August 27th, and she said to me, "Um, you know, hi, this is so-and-so, you know, I'm one of the executives in Atlanta, and I just wanted to see whether you were ever interested in, in anchoring. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, uh, oh my goodness, yes. And she said, would you be willing to move to our headquarters in Atlanta if you get the job, if you, um, you know, we bring you an audition and, and and you get the job, would you be willing to move? I said, absolutely. And, and it turned out that CNN had extended their overnight programming. They didn't really have overnight programming before that point, And they were looking for young, new people to audition for a job. Hmm. And I And I knew that just based on what had happened to me previously with preparing for success that I knew that I sent the universe, God, Mm. a higher power, a sign that I wanted this and that I had that faith and that, you know, it was going to work out my way. And it did. And so within the fastest amount of time I've, you know, that I've ever experienced, I think it was like a year and a half of being a reporter at CNN, I then became an anchor. And I know that... You know, when I went to that audition, it was the same kind of thing because she told me that the audition is going to be in a month. And then she called me and said, oh, no, no, I'm really sorry. We're going to have to fly you out to Atlanta in a week. We need to find <laughs> someone right right away. And she again apologized and said, I'm so sorry. I know you haven't had time to It's mm. Exactly the same situation that happened to me um, with the business news situation.
1: Mm.
0: And then um went out to Atlanta and I knew that I'd been preparing for months because, you know, I just had that faith and then I got the job. So it, it it it's been twice now that i've learned this lesson so yeah definitely prepare for success well before well before it's even anywhere on the horizon.
1: I'm quite literally going to take that advice, quite literally, because I think that, yeah. sorry, (laughs) I'm just like, I'm trying to separate my excitedness about hearing this and talking to you, (laughs) trying to be all serious, but in my heart, I'm like, okay, that's a nugget. I'm definitely running with that. Um, Now, Zane, if we can maybe focus just a little bit with regards to uh, Nigeria, you know, um, obviously because you're a (laughs) Nigerian babe. So I I saw an interview online where you literally was, where a stat had, had been mentioned, I don't know if that has changed since then, about how one in every four kidnappings um, happen in the world happens in Nigeria. And I mean, I, I think for a large part, you know, a lot of people are aware of this happening in the river state area because of the oil and everything and, and so forth. But it's it really seems like it's quite intense and you've actually had a personal family experience where that is concerned, if you could possibly share that.
0: Yeah, it was my uncle, this was many years ago, um, who experienced kidnapping. Um, And so, yes, I mean, listen, without... It's so so tricky to me because, as a Nigerian, I want to get out the positive stories Mm. out there about the continent without dwelling too much on the negative. But Mm. yes, listen, kidnappings are a problem. Mm. You know, it's something that... I mean, we... I did that story um, about Nigeria when what happened to my uncle around the time of the missing girls. And that's when people Mm. were really sort of taking a close look at the the country and saying, you know, how is this possible that these young, innocent girls, teenagers could be taken from a boarding school? Um, And that wasn't the first step. That may have been the the most sort of publicized mass kidnapping on the continent, but that, by all means, was not the first, and it was not the last. Mm. And so... For me, it was, it, it was such a difficult situation because it was um, something that was very personal and it, it, I needed to address that personal aspect of what could have happened to my uncle. Fortunately, he was released, but mm-hmm. you know, the fact that he was kidnapped and also having to report on the missing girls and, and figure out why my country allowed this to happen and why did it take international pressure, mm-hmm. especially in the United States, and the UK to really shine a spotlight on this within the country. So, I mean, listen, Nigeria, beautiful country, um, will always be my home. I don't just mean my home because that's where my parents are from. Mm. It's my home just in terms of where my soul feels at peace. I love love my country 100%. Um, but there are issues that need to be worked on, especially when it comes to security and especially when it comes to um, the security of not just people who are, who are from there, but also foreigners as well. And so I hope that, obviously, you know, Buhari's been reelected, um, and I hope that's one thing that, that he does
1: continue to address. Hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, I, the, one of the things that you said that um, kind of stood out um, in, in your previous answer was about wanting to get as many positive stories out about Nigeria and the continent as possible. And I really, I really think that that's so good because it's so much easier. I think in general, it's so easy to speak negative and people will kind of, you know, gravitate towards the negative news and the bad headline and the bad story. But I feel that within the continent, you know, they perhaps there aren't enough Good stories of um, great innovation, um, you know, and that sort of thing. And just, you know, with elections going well and so forth, that is not highlighted enough. Um, I think that within the continent, we don't we don't those conversations don't happen often enough. It's always gearing towards what went wrong versus what is going right. And then sometimes we also seem to forget that around the world. You know Nigeria may have its problems um you know, but if you compare it perhaps to what's going on in America with the whole gun control situation and the amount of children being killed, which one is worse? It's almost like every country kind of has their thing, but it's it's about hoping that situations will kind of you know will work out, and the people who are in power will kind of do the mindful thing to ensure that people's lives are saved pretty much,
0: yeah, I mean, you're right um you know, every country has has their own issues and issues to contend with. I think that if I was going to suggest one thing, though, it would be just, um, Niger- I, without generalizing when it comes to 200 million people, I hate generalizations, but I think that when I'm home in Nigeria, what I notice is that a lot of Nigerians celebrate their country, mm. but at the same time, they really... Uh, you know, are upset and angry about some of the problems as well. So, this is it's always a sort of dual narrative. And I was joking on CNN the other, the other day um, when I interviewed a friend of mine about the Nigerian elections that it always appears that whenever there's change on the horizon when it comes to whichever president might come into power in Nigeria, people are always hopeful. They're always excited, okay, this person, we're going to vote for this person because they're going to do this, 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 and this, and they're going to change X, Y, Z. And then, no matter who takes over the country, there's always rejection. There's yeah. always, you know, some kind of like, oh, well, you know, we knew this person was useless, so, you know, we're not going to support them anymore. And, and I couldn't think of one president that has come in that people, who, people have actually been excited about initially and that excitement has stayed. You know, I feel as though, like, no matter who takes over the country, oftentimes people then unfortunately resort to negativity and focusing on the problems. Nigeria is a country that has so much potential, so much, I mean, the level of resourcefulness. Mm. I mean, it's not, just about, it's not just about Nigerians within Nigeria. Um, you know, I've done plenty of stories about the economic successes of a lot of Nigerians within the country. You know, now we're having the first smartphone built in Nigeria, all of the whole um, policies surrounding Made in Nigeria, that Buhari campaign has really taken off, etc. But it's also Nigerians outside of the country as well. Like, like it was three years in a row where Nigerians, um, where I think it was three teenagers in 2016, 2015 and 2017, made international headlines because they got into all eight Ivy League schools. What? And they were all sure. Nigerians, mm. every single one. They were all Nigerian-Americans. And you think about the fact that the first black senator in Italy is a Nigerian. You think about the mm. fact that the first black MP of Poland is also Nigerian. I mean, there's so much to celebrate. I'm not just talking about Nigerians because I'm, I'm from there. Obviously, there are so many other countries on the continent, so many other countries on the continent that are doing amazing things as well. And that's what I want. I mean, that's what I want my goal um, to be in terms of focusing on that, and not just the security issues and issues when it comes to power and we we all know those stories um but we I would love for all of us to celebrate more just uh, the wonderful things that come out of of africa sure
1: yeah i'm I'm even just inspired just hearing those stories because I thought that I knew about all the amazing things happening, and when you say that i'm literally thinking, okay, you know there is quite a bit of learning to do, um you know, just about <laughs> about the continent, um, you know, just about Nigeria and I think the continent as a whole. Um so Zayn, I also wanted to just talk to you about what you thought about the role of, of a journalist um is. Um, you know, and how you feel social media has either has been um has benefited the world of journalism if I can say that, or how it's perhaps, you know, worked in perhaps in, in a more negative way. What would you how would you describe the role of, of social media in what is defined as journalism today?
0: Well, it's tricky because social media, um, in a way, helps journalists but also competes with journalists at the same time. So on the one hand, you know, um, people now get their news a lot of times from social media. I mean, we, we've talked plenty of times on CNN. This is not just to do with Africa, it's just it's in general. Mm. Um, we've talked plenty of times on CNN and just people getting their news from Facebook or from Twitter, but the problem with that is that it makes our job in a way harder because, yes, people are getting more informed, and I welcome that, but oftentimes the type of information and the accuracy of the information that we get from social media is problematic. Oftentimes it's skewed um, towards some kind of political slant or political bias because You know, especially in a place that is as divided as America, people search for news that already validates their point of view. They either go to a partisan newspaper or they go to social media where their own sort of circle of friends are putting up, you know, information that validates what they already believe. So they stay in their own silo, their own bubble. And as a result, they don't necessarily expand their worldview. Um, They don't expand their... Intellect—they're not um, sort of crossing cultural boundaries and thinking about things in a new way, which is what the purpose of—that's part of my role as as a news anchor and as a journalist of CNN—is to make people think about things differently, think about things that they never really thought about. And so, you have social media that is kind of competing at the same time with certain news outlets, but at the same time, making our job harder because then we have to correct. Um, what people have learned on social media and then they think, I mean, this is what's happening in, in um, the United States with the whole fake news, mm. you know, this whole hashtag fake news, etc. that's targeted predominantly, I think, at CNN but a lot of other media outlets as well. So people are so used to being in their own bubble on social media that then when they see CNN or another news outlet that doesn't necessarily agree with them or doesn't switch. reflect back to them what they already believe, they think, oh, well, that's, that's fake news. We don't believe that. Mm. um So I think that social media, as much as it's changed the world in a positive light, I can think of so many positive social media stories just in terms of the way it bridges communities together. But at the same time, I think when it comes to journalism, I think it's made it's made things a lot more complicated.
1: So what one life event, if you if you were to pick one, do you think has changed or influenced your life um, in the most significant way? What one life event... Life experience of yours, yeah, has has kind of changed. Um,
0: well, I think that um, in the most positive way possible, mm. it would be living in Nigeria because mm. that was my experience uh, in terms of connecting with myself and understanding who I am. You know, it's it's interesting when you see in America, like protests about racial bias, etc. I go back to Nigeria. I don't have to tell anyone that Black Lives Matter. Yeah. You know, I don't yeah. have to worry that I'm going to be discriminated against. I actually, one of the f- earliest memories I have was when I got accepted into Oxford. My mother told me that on my grandparents' street in Enegu that, that people had had like a little street party to celebrate. Mm. And I was so touched because I just, that was the first time in my life that I had ever experienced people who I'd never met, people who I'd never sh- spoken to, people who I'd never even shaken hands with, being genuinely happy to see me succeed. Sure. And that is why I say that Nigeria, just in terms of, it's not just my home because, oh yeah, my parents were born in indigo it's my home in terms of my soul. It's where my soul is genuinely at peace. It's where the sunlight of my spirit can actually truly shine. But mm. just... Having experienced living in Nigeria, I I, I just think that I would be a completely different person if I'd never gone back to Nigeria at at such a young age. Um, And not only did I go back at the age of 10, but I continued going back um, like every year after that. And it it just influenced so much of of who I am and my personality and my belief system as well. It made me a lot more spiritual, a lot more grounded and a lot more appreciated, appreciative rather, Mm -hmm. and centered. Um, and I would say the second, obviously, is, um, you know, my dad passing away. Mm. Um, you know, that was a bit more of a, obviously, a, a negative impact. Mm. I I think my biggest, the hardest thing is, is not just about that he passed away, but he passed away when I was so young. Mm. My sister was uh, more than born when my dad passed away. She was still in the stomach. My mom was pregnant with her at the time. And so for her, she never got to meet him. She never heard the sound of her, you know his voice other than through, like, um, old VHS tapes and stuff, mm. videos of like old baptisms and christenings and that kind of thing but um, you know for me I, I really only knew him so there's probably like 10-15 memories I have of, of my dad and that is you know something that I'll, I'll carry with me for the rest of my life um, and I I'll I'll never know how my life would have been different had I got to know him a bit a bit more. Mm-hmm. So that's something that there's, there's a there's a pain there that I think will we'll always be there. So
1: yeah, definitely. Sure. I'm really sorry again about um that um experience of losing your dad. Um so um also Africa Day happens every year I think on the 25th of May. Um and I think it's similar kind of to what happens in America with Black History Month. Um, but for you, do you think, what do you think about um, months or days and such, you know, about them celebrating particular people? So what, what are your thoughts around Africa Day? Do you think it's something that's of importance um, or not? Or do you, I mean, have you even actually heard of it? Because some people just kind of have not even really heard of it. No,
0: I've heard of it. I think that it is something that's important. I think that it's something that I personally would love to be more involved with, especially um, on on CNN in terms of showcasing the continent. I think that, you know, these sorts of things, um, it's nice to have, whether it's Black History Month or whether it's Africa Day, I think these sorts of things are positive, but I think it can't just be one day. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, when it comes to sort of remembering or acknowledging great Africans or inspiring people who who have inspired you on the continent or people who have made change in a positive way on the continent. That's not just a one-day thing. It's got to continue um, throughout the entire year. I mean, that's got to be... Everyone in the Africa diaspora, that is our job, especially if we live outside of the continent. Um, We have to make sure that, as I was saying earlier, that that the stories surrounding the continent um, that get showcased on an international stage... Continue to be positive and uplifting ones, um, mm. which is difficult to do because I think that, you know, I I notice that people, when you try to share positive stories about Africa, oftentimes people who are not African, their eyes glaze over. Yes. They're interested because they can't really relate to it. They don't, that's not the part, that's not the side of Africa that they understand or they're used to. And so I think you just have to continue fighting, and eventually they will get used to it. And eventually it will be the norm to hear about. To hear positive stories about africans who are achieving things that have never been done before and that sort of thing so yes i'm all for africa day I'm all for black history month but it shouldn't just be you know a frozen time one day or one month event on your calendar it has to continue it's got to be it's got to really influence the mindset of people who are talking about africa on a daily basis
1: Mm. and now you're based in new york if i'm correct right Yes. Okay. So, so the term. Uh, so when when I speak about how in New York state of mind, I'm sure that's something that you hear quite often. Um, <laughs> how would yes. you describe um, if you if, if you were to? How would you describe what an African state of mind is? I'll, I'll give. I'll I'll just mention something else just of interest and just to see what how you'd engage with this. So um, there was one of our previous interviews that we did was with uh, David O's manager, ASA. And he literally said, he said that, oh, you know, if you can make it in Lagos, you can make it anywhere. He said the difference between <laughs> Lagos and and, and and New York are, is that in New York, in, in New York and the difference between Lagos and New York is the fact that New York does has a structure and Lagos doesn't. So he says to me. A million dollars. If you make a million dollars in Lagos, he goes. That's almost close to a billion in New York. So he he literally he, he just kind of described it the you know that's how he felt so passionate about from a Nigeria perspective. For you, when you think about an African state of mind versus um, perhaps an uh, you know uh, an American state of mind, or how people just kind of climb up, how would you describe that?
0: Well, I would say that um, one thing. I've learned about sending time in Nigeria is that hard work means different things to different people. Mm. And so when people talk about a work ethic um, or a strong work ethic, you know, in America, it means one thing. In the UK, it means one thing. In Africa, it's entirely different. So someone, you know, someone, you know, who uh, you know might work three hours on um, you know, working towards their dream, and they think, oh, my God, I've worked so hard. But when you apply the African work ethic, mm. the, the, the level of hard work that people are willing to to experience in order to achieve their goals is something entirely different. Um, when, when I was younger, my mom used to tell us that, um, you know, just in terms of making it and working hard and being successful, she used to tell us, that we, in order to make it, you had to do tw- there's 24 hours in a day, and you had to divide your day into three equal parts, right? So, eight hours to sleep, eight hours to spend in school, or, you know, at, at your job, or, you know, at, at the office if you're old enough to have a job. And the last eight hours of your day had to be spent working towards your dream. That sums up the African state of mind. Mm-hmm. Because my mom's whole, uh, mindset was that if you ask anybody how long they spent sleeping last night, they'll be able to tell you easily, oh, you know, I slept for seven, eight hours last night. If you ask anybody how long did you spend in school or how long did you spend in the office, they'll be able to tell you very easily, oh, I spent eight or nine hours in the office or in school yesterday. So when you ask people, what did you do with the last eight hours of your day, very few people would be able to actually tell you. So my mom's whole point was that everybody spends eight hours sleeping. Everybody spends eight hours in the office. What distinguishes you, not in a sort of mean competitive way, but just Mm. in terms of moving up, what distinguishes you is in how you spend the last eight hours of your day. Mm -hmm. And that has always stuck with me. And that is how I define the African state of mind when it comes to the African hustle. That that, that sums up like nothing else.
1: Listen, Zane, I I can't even add to that. I'm just sitting there. I'm thinking, okay, now I have to go home and review everything. <laughs> <But it's, laughs> I literally you know like every single time you say something I keep going quiet because i'm just i'm you know i'm soaking everything in and i 'm learning and i'm literally taking notes as you're speaking because I think like like I said before at the at the beginning of this interview, you really inspire a lot of people just by the way that you are and and you know thank you for taking time out to have this conversation with us and it's so lovely to be able to the way that I thought that you would be is exactly the way that you are so you you truly are the person that you portray so that's that's really amazing. Quick question: Your That's favorite good. Niger meal? Your favorite, favorite, favorite? Let's go.
0: Oh, it, it's always going to be a bona soup. That is <laughs> where you'll. I mean, I try to keep it classy, classy, <laughs> but that is where if if I need to lick the bowl, <laughs> that That's is the
1: one. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: the, that is the one. A bona soup. There is nothing like it. Yeah, like it. I'm not. I'm not keen on egusi so much. Um, you know, when I was younger, my siblings and I used to actually to avoid finishing our food when it was a goosey, we would take it and we would like shove, we shove the Gary and a goosey into our pockets. So my mom thought <laughs> that we had finished the food. I know, and we hadn't. But a bono, that is, that is the one for me. So.
1: And then for you, uh, the jollof rice that you like the most. I had to ask the question just because, you know, I could not, I can't, I, know, I can't it's leave so it. funny. <laughs> I know. So of course, Nigeria makes the best jollof rice in the world, right? Of course. <laughs> but but uh, sorry and just just real quick cuz Obviously, I mean, when, when Richard Quest was in Nigeria and then the minister, Muhammad Lai, I think it was, he, you know, the yep. answer that he gave and everybody was like, no, he was trying to say that Jollof Fry started in, in Senegal, but Nigeria, it's great and everything. You sitting in the States, what were you thinking when that news first broke? I mean, you must I have mean, been. I <laughs> you know, I, I actually watched it
0: live because I was sitting in the studio, I was sitting in Richard's studio just in case his shot went down. Yes. And, um, they would, basically, I would take over the show. And so I was waiting and I was listening intently, because um, you know, Richard always likes to ask a nice little funny question towards the end. Yeah. And when he said that, I just knew that, they, I mean, I told all the producers in the studio, I was like, listen, guys, this is going to be, this, this, this is going to be a viral moment in Nigeria. Yeah. They didn't understand because obviously they're, they're mostly American and British. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, Nigerians are so proud of their culture that you cannot, you cannot. Yeah you know, mention another country doing anything better while you're in Nigeria talking about Nigeria and you are a Nigerian yourself. No way. Yeah. Um, so it was unfortunate. I think he's trying to walk it back. And, I mean, I, I, I think I do understand why, he, because, I mean, you know, you know, I think maybe he he may have been confused. I'm gonna I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> um I'm gonna try to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I just yeah, I knew that he was not gonna I mean people that was years ago. It was literally like I think it was two years two or three years ago. Yeah. And oh, or maybe maybe two years ago. Um and people still talk about it. Yeah. So yeah.
1: I get asked that question a lot. Yeah. Poor guy. Poor I guy. know. I feel sorry for him. I was in Port Harcourt um and we were on a an, a palm oil plant and the security that was travelling with us the entire time never they never spoke. you know what I mean? Like they kind of oh, were like there was no. they didn't even look at you, they didn't speak or anything. And then at one moment like everybody was having lunch, um um on one of the different plantations, and then I literally made a comment about the jollof rice and the security guard who did did not ever speak. He literally opened his mouth and started speaking. And everybody kind of looks and they were shocked. <laughs> they said he has spoken. I'm like, uh-huh, I think it's a jollof Rice conversation. And from then on, I actually oh had God. one a friend. So that is how deep jollof Rice goes in like you know, in oh terms of the God. cultural identity of Nigeria. But then I could speak yeah. to you forever. Um we're looking forward to seeing all the other awesome things that you do. Um, you know, definitely uh Nigeria and the whole of the continent is behind you. A hundred and thirty percent you know so yeah and hopefully you enjoy this whole new um, chapter in your life um you know marriage and your baby and just and everything so we're looking forward to just seeing everything else that comes out um from your side because i know i'm pretty sure that you're preparing for something i'm pretty sure probably don't want to share it, <laughs> but when it happens, I'm going to say, listen, Zayn uh, is my girl, and she told me, so I knew that on the 28th of February, 2019, she had been preparing for this, <laughs> so we'll check oh in on God, you in six months. So <laughs> oh
0: my God, that's so funny. Well, I'm, I'm really enjoying just sort of being, when, it, when you have a family, um, everything changes, you know, the perspective changes, and you, you do slow down a little bit. <sighs> So my priority really is just is my son and so mm. um yeah but i i'm looking forward to see w- seeing what else god has for me and i'm sure he has great things for you and for amen. everybody who's listening who's as well oh. everybody who's listening i just send out blessings to everybody
1: oh, amen i receive that oh.
0: Head to lifepodcasts.fm to find out more on the positive changes people are making on the continent in Africa. state of mind. Subscribe to this podcast at lifepodcasts.fm or on your favorite podcast app. Subscribing to a live podcast is free.